Welcome to the Friday subscribers-only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights, and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you again this Friday. What are we, the 12th of August? The countdown continues. Great to connect, guys. A lot to discuss uh, this week, and uh, we will get to uh, in this broadcast a, a kind of summary of some of the Hub's original reporting on the meeting of uh, this group, the Center Ice Conservatives, this week. Uh, what does this group want to do? Is there a future for centricism? Is that a word? Anilogism? Uh, when it comes to conservative movements and parties and ideas in Canada. But I want to start, guys, kick off just the big news of the week uh, in the United States. Um, we've seen uh, an unprecedented raid by FBI agents uh, on uh, the Trump residence in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, reports out yesterday that Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States, but the Biden appointee to that office signed off on uh, this raid and the search warrant. And we also, as of today, have rumors circulating from the Washington Post and elsewhere that the documentation that the government was looking for may have included highly sensitive, classified, top secret information related somehow to nuclear weapons, either America's uh, disposition of its nuclear forces, maybe American allies, enemies, uh, a kind of just surprising bombshell uh, rumor. <laughs> if it becomes a revelation, that's what I want to get to you with you, you guys. Is just, is this the, a moment where the Republican Party could or should finally break with Trump or Sean. We have seen this party, partly to its shame, you know, consistently defining Trump's deviancy down. Um, you know, whether it was the self-avowed sexual harassment of women on the part of the president, uh, you know, numerous counts of of lying, uh, alighting the truth to be put it as kindly as possible in court depositions and other official settings and scenarios. I mean, what's your sense here, Sean? Is this potentially a watershed moment to try to understand the 2024 U.S. election? Uh, first of all, kudos on the Daniel Patrick Monaghan uh, re reference. I, I heard it. I suspect many of our listeners did as well. Um, I, I got to tell you, Rudyard, my instinct is actually the opposite. Um, uh, that rather than this being a moment in which we see a, a kind of permanent rupture between Trump 
and Republican politics, uh, I worry that this uh, event will actually produce the ultimate result, that it will, uh, it will restore Trump as the, um, as the kind of unequivocal leader of the Republican Party. Over the past several weeks and months, his star had diminished some due in part to the fact that he was no longer on Twitter, um, due in part to the January 6th committee hearings, which, you know, well, it did, haven't produced a silver bullet, have certainly raised legitimate questions about uh, his activities in and around um, the riots uh, at the, the Capitol building. And so, you know, I worry, as George Will set out in the Washington Post the past couple of days, and David Brooks did this morning in the New York Times, uh, that an FBI raid on the president um, uh, will give him, the former president that is, will give him the opportunity to do what he does best, uh, turn himself into a victim, and in so doing, galvanize his supporters. I'll, I'll just say one final thing. If indeed the case is that what they were searching for is nuclear uh, uh, documents, documents related to uh, nuclear weapons, that seems to me does reach the threshold justifying this action on the part of the Department of Justice. If it was other secret documents or classified documents that don't quite reach that level, I worry that Merrick Gartland and, and, and other officials in the Department of Justice have, have kind of failed to uh, exercise uh, prudence, um, given um, the, the potential backlash and consequences uh, uh, resulting from this decision. Stuart, this must just be like a febrile moment for U.S. media. Um, it, can you imagine, Stuart, the, the kind of competition, the kind of race between Washington Post, New York Times, Fox, these other, you know, try to get to the bottom of this, the search warrant, um, Will it looks like be unsealed uh, later today? President Trump has, as uh, former President Trump has no longer uh, issued any kind of objection, um, and the three o'clock deadline today. Sir, what do you think this is? This is like for the media covering this. Are there certain no go areas? It seems, at least on the the center right media, you know, a lot of pretty rank speculation. Um, about, you know, Biden's complicit uh, actions in this. I mean, just wild allegations that get thrown around. Does it kind of make you despair, Stuart, a bit about the state of the fifth estate uh, in the U.S.? Yeah, I think that's, you know, something that um, kind of occurred to me while this whole kind of Trump thing was going on is, and I would just use it as a word of warning right now, that there were a lot of these sort of intel and, you know, police leaks that were happening, especially during the Mueller report, that they hit the headlines as if they were the biggest news story of the year. And it started happening every couple of weeks. And then the first story would be huge. And then the next story would kind of walk it back a little bit. And then it would get smaller and smaller and smaller from there. Um, so I really, I, I feel like with these kind of stories, you just have to wait and see. Um, nuclear documents obviously doesn't sound good, but you know, I don't know what kind of nuclear documents the U.S. government has or that would even come into contact with Donald Trump. I have no idea. And I suspect that a lot of the journalists covering this have no idea. Um, I think, you know, there's something that has been kind of a, you know, it, it, it's seen as sort of this glorious moment, um, the Watergate scandal in the U.S. But I kind of think actually that it's been a bad thing for journalists because they have started to assume that every scandal 
is the scandal that brings down the president or the prime minister and that it all goes to the top. And everything that gets reported as even sort of a minor scandal gets this kind of Watergate infusion to it. And, you know, it's like we, right now we're watching a story in Alberta about an essay written by a young person that's being treated as, you know, all the president's men kind of thing. And I think that journalists have kind of lost that scope and sense of scale. Uh, Trump does not help this because he's a bad actor, the likes of which we haven't really seen. And these stories are very serious. So uh, I, I kind of find myself in the middle of trying not to think of this as you know more than what it is, but also trying to take it as seriously as it deserves. Good insights. Um, Sean, you know, we can play this out a bit and think about where this is gonna go from here. You know, isn't it inevitable that they would move to bring charges against the president. I mean, if everyone has surmised that they wouldn't have taken the extraordinary risk of this search warrant, the precedent that it sets, the political fallout that it will incur without a fairly high degree of certainty that there was something serious in the way of uh, a breach of a breach of Secrets Act, a breach of the handling of classified documents. You only have to remember Sandy Berger, uh, General David Petraeus, you know, senior figures uh, in different administrations, you know, caught up narrowly avoiding jail time. I mean, American security and law enforcement take this stuff seriously. Um, is this, I guess, is it, is it a, a moment here where we could conceivably see Trump criminally charged, uh, former president. I mean, what does that say about the state of American democracy where on one hand, you can't stand by as the rule of law is just flaunted, but on the other hand, it seems, uh, you know, Marco Rubio's quote about banana republics, you, you are pursuing one administration of one party is pursuing the leader of another party and ideology through the apparatus and administration of the state and its organs of justice and punishment and incarceration. Yeah, I wish I had um, a kind of well-reasoned and, um, and well-developed response to your question uh, and, and your comments. Um, this is something of uncharted water. Um, you know, I was I, I mentioned David Brooks column this morning, in New York Times, I would encourage listeners to, to read it, you know, as Brooks says, if you follow this scenario, logically, we could have the Department of Justice pressing charges against a, a presidential candidate in the midst of a presidential election. Um, and as he puts it, I presume we would see widespread political violence from incensed Trump voters who would conclude that the regime, uppercase R, has stolen my country, stolen the country rather. In my view, this is the most likely path to a complete democratic breakdown, unquote. So uh, the, the, one of the things that I really like about the Brooks column is he, he, he acknowledges that he doesn't have answers. He says, I have no clue how to get out of this potential conflict between our legal and political realities. And it seems to me that's as a good response as I can give to your question or comments than, mm -hmm. than anything. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the conservative 
view on this really does have to be one you'd hope that rallies around the rule of law. In the absence of the rule of law, there is nothing. There is just simply the risk of the abyss of kind of chaos, anarchy, and uh, collapse. So I, I think what, what alarms me here, Stuart, is, is that sense of a kind of vortices that the U.S. has been sucked into, where you have in Trump uh, a malignant actor who, who flaunts the rule of law um, repeatedly, each time raising the stakes higher and higher, like some you know, deranged kind of arsonist. In this case, he's raised the stakes to something where the state felt it was compelled to act. And, I, and again, I think you can go back to the examples of Sandy Berger and General Petraeus and genuinely, I think, have a fairly high conviction that Merrick Garland's decision to approve this warrant is based on, you know, a culture of national security and uh, the protection and preservation of, you know, vital American interests and, and secrets. Um, the different administrations of different stripes have gone after people repeatedly for, for breaches, security breaches of this nature. But what happens here, again, is the, the state gets sucked in. It has to respond. And as we saw tragically in the last 24 hours, uh, seemingly a deranged gunmen storming uh, an FBI office in Ohio and being shot dead, being killed. Uh, and he was on, uh, in the last previous 24 hours, on Trump's social media website, allegedly making posts about the necessity to pick up arms and, uh, you know, prepare for Armageddon. Uh, I don't know, Stuart, I just, you always have this, that saying, don't bet against America, right? You just wonder about this moment and what we're seeing here, whether this is kind of, you know, it's the sinews of something snapping uh, before our very eyes. Yeah, it reminds me actually of a piece we ran by uh, Father Raymond D'Souza about, you know, if anyone has ever read about the 60s and 70s, um, there were political assassination, assassinations going on in the US uh, quite regularly. And uh, Father was saying, you know, we, there's no guarantee we don't go back to that. And we kind of have this idea that the world tends to get better and better and better. I think we might be losing that idea given the, you know, last 15 or so years. Um, but, you know, and, and I think it's probably hurts my point to get all, you know, Canadian smug about this, but just, I just want to compare this a little bit because we ran a piece, um, you know, taught, we had a dialogue with Eric Kaufman, the, the, expert on populism. And I wrote a piece about that. And it said, you know, Kaufman's idea of Polyev is that he's not some kind of global populist type figure like Trump. And I thought that's that was pretty obvious that Polyev isn't that type of populist. I think you can make the case that he's a kind of Western Canadian populist that we've seen before. Um, but I was really surprised by the reaction online that, you know, that it was some crazy statement that Polyev wasn't, you know, along the lines of Trump. And I think it is worth taking stock of this, that we're looking at actual law breaking here. The January 6th committee um, revealed a lot of stuff, a lot of really serious stuff, a lot of really bad stuff that just seems uh, totally unlikely and out of the realm of possibility in Canada, um, partly just because of the nature of our institutions, but just because of the type of people we have running in politics. Um, so I just kind of, 
you know, you don't want to do this too much where you say, oh, in Canada, everything's fine, because it's obviously not. But the level of, you know, alleged criminality here is something beyond anything I can imagine happening in Canada. Well, not just the level of alleged criminality in this particular case, um, but frankly, the kind of lack of seriousness reflected across the political spectrum at this moment of tumultuousness in, in U.S. politics. We're having this conversation about a week after Republican Congressman Peter Meyer was defeated in a Republican primary in the state of Michigan because his Democratic opponents, opponents uh you know, flooded the zone with money to support his Trumpist opponent in the Republican primary because they thought that that candidate would be easier to defeat in a general election. And his particular case is not an isolated one. There's been a series of Republican primary races across the U.S. where progressive Democrats have actively supported Trumpist candidates at the expense of moderate conservatives, um, which is, you know, just speaks to a level of cynicism on one hand and frankly irresponsibility on the other um that is an indictment of the entire american political system you know you have all this um pearl clutching about you know the need to find moderate republicans and where are all the good conservatives and all this and the the, the small number that have actually stood up to trump and these types of of extraordinary uh uh political uh behaviors, uh, we've seen Democrats, you know, in effect, snipe them one by one um, in Republican primaries. So I guess that's a long way of saying, uh, you know, my never Trump credentials, I think are pretty rock solid. And I don't want to succumb to what about ism. Um, but you know, I can't help but think that the political developments in the past week or 10 days in the US really amounts to a pox on everyone's house. Can I just say, Sean, quickly, um, there is a comparable here to Canada where progressives in Alberta have actually been organizing against Smith because they are worried about her effect on, you know, the political landscape. And, you know, whatever you think of their calculations, whatever you think of, you know, what they're doing, um, there is a level of sort of sincerity and earnestness to that, that they're actually possibly getting themselves a harder opponent because they are actually worried about Daniel Smith. Um, and it, it kind of makes me feel a little bit better that, you know, that is that does take a level of seriousness that we're not seeing from Democrats in the U.S. Excellent, guys. Good discussion. When we come back from this short break, we're going to dig into center ice. Is there a loony buried there that has... I don't know, the image of John Diefenbaker. I don't know, is he a centrist? Probably. In this day and age, we might classify him as such. Anyway, we'll get into the centerized conservatives. They had a big meeting this week. What was it all about? What did we learn? We had a hub reporter on the ground. Back after the short message. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. 
Hello, you're listening to the Friday Roundtable at The Hub. My guests are Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. Uh, Stuart, you are in Alberta right now. Your colleague, uh, Luke Smith, our deputy editor, was at the Center Ice um, event this week. What, uh, what did you guys take away from this? Um, is there a substantive agenda here? Or is it in some ways maybe not fair to expect one um, so early in what seems like a fairly kind of nascent, uh, loosely formed group of conservatives who are uh, seemingly honest and interested in putting forward ideas that are going to be popular and uh, effective electorally uh, for the party? Yeah, it was... um... The thing that most interested me was how many people are actually interested in this thing, um, because I think one of the arguments being made is that there's this silent majority out there that are sort of put off by Pierre Polyev and are tired of Justin Trudeau's government. And if only we could just get a reasonable opposition party, you know, they would coast to power. Um, so, you know, there was about 100 people at the event yesterday. Um, Politico tells us that they saw the most they saw on the live stream was about 50 viewers. Um, I was interested, you know, talking to Luke about some of the issues that were being raised. This was like supply management and, you know, things like that. Sort of like technocratic conservative bugaboos. Uh, Not the kind of thing that tend to win you elections in platforms and not that they're bad issues and not that these people are wrong, but um, they're not going to be sort of wildly popular issues. Um, It was more or less just sort of a an issue conference, like the ones that I'm sure Sean's been to dozens or maybe hundreds of them. Um, And as far as a movement goes, uh, Christy Clark was the keynote speaker and her main premise was that conservatives are getting too extreme um, and that she's a fan of Jean Charest. So, um, you know, take that for what you will. Um, I, I, having watched this and having talked to Luke and read some other reporting, I don't see a, a huge movement brewing here, but, you know, they could sort of over time start to have a small impact on the conservative party if that's what their intention is john what was your take i'll just add roger that when you listen to some of the ideas that were advanced at the conference one can't help but think that it is at its core a kind of anti polyev movement i know they took steps to uh, dissuade people of that idea but uh, you know dominic cardi the uh, New Brunswick politician uh, was on a panel in which he he said that we are at war with China. Um, you know, it seems to me it's hard to, on one hand, argue for temporal and rhetorical moderation, and on the other hand, talk about being in the midst of a war uh, with China, something we talked about on last week's episode. So I, I guess that's a long way of saying, you know, a lot of interesting voices there, um, Andrew Coyne, who we'll incidentally have on the podcast on Tuesday, our, our 100th episode of Hub Dialogues. Uh, so, so stay tuned for that. Brian Lee Crowley, you know, something of a mentor of mine and, and founder of the McDonald Laurie Institute, a big thinker, et cetera, et cetera. But at its core, I just, it's, I, I find it hard to see what the connective tissue is uh, between the, the different figures involved and the ideas advanced besides just a kind of general sense that Polyev's hard edges, um, you know, are, are a bit discomforting. And 
you know, I, I at different times share that that sentiment, but I'm just not sure it's the basis of a kind of serious movement. Uh, you know, what's what's your take, Rudyard? Yeah, I mean, you guys are following us a lot closer than I am, but you know, from downtown Toronto here, uh, you know, two thousand miles away from. Uh, I think the closest conservative heartbeat <laughs> might be somewhere north, far north of the 401. Um, I think the perception is that, you know, the party will have a shaking out. And I guess it's just whether that shaking out is a violent one, whether there's a, you know, everyone's assuming that Polyev will make a, the predictable pivot to the center. Um, you know, if that all happens and it happens relatively seamlessly, then I think groups like this group, centerized conservatives, it's unclear as to what their role would be. But I think there could also be another scenario. And we've talked about this in the past. There were, you know, uh, stories this week that I think bolster this view um, that Pierre Polyev has signed up possibly tens of thousands of new members who are coming into organized politics for the very first time with some decidedly, to put it charitably, odd odd views. There was a, a story in the National Post that reported out on a number of Polyev uh, uh, members uh, that he signed up who were not going to vote because Deloitte, the company that was will be auditing and overseeing uh, the leadership vote, it has a relationship with the World Economic Forum. And, uh, you know, the, you could say, well, this is just, you know, a few random Twitter accounts. Um, it's a faction of a faction, but it, it does speak to a very different kind of mindset, a very different type of political energy that Pierre Polyev, to his credit, you know, politically in a masterful way has energized and channeled into his leadership ambitions. But I think the verdict on center ice will be later, not today, not the next month. It'll be whether or not this party stumbles as a result of a change up, a, a kind of high octane injection into the party fuel mix of, you know, some pretty fired up, pretty radical members who have decidedly odd views on many of the big issues of our time. Stuart, what's your take? Am I pearl clutching, as Sean would say. Yeah, I, I'm actually not sure. I do really find myself having trouble um, sorting through the actual effect of this. And, you know, one of the things about the internet is it floats the crazies to the top. Um, it's not only is it a, a pathway where you can sort of get into sort of fringe ideas pretty easily, but also, I mean, if, if we've all tweeted before and you get 20 replies and it's the one crazy one that you look at and remember for the rest of the day. Um, so there is that effect. And I know that happens to politicians where, um, you know, they're just seeing this stuff more. Um, and also I think there is sort of, um, you know, online, there's a lot of trolling going on. It's hard to know how serious these people are about, you know, these conspiracy theories. There are certainly rabbit holes that people have gone down that are quite worrying and are actually kind of tragic. Um, you know, to lose people like that. Um, but I'm really not sure. It's kind of a cop out. But I was actually thinking um, this this whole Paul Wells had a good piece about the centerized conservatives. And I'll just say something he mentioned that I think is worth mentioning on our podcast is 
Um, he remembers talking to Marjorie LeBreton before Stephen Harper was leader of the conservatives. And he said that he would get lengthy emails from her constantly about how he's not fit to be leader. And, you know, the, the party's going to crumble if, if he's leader. And, you know, when he got into power, they worked together famously, right? Um, and there is kind of an effect that happens when someone takes control of the party. And especially if they have a shot at winning, I mean, that solves a lot of problems once you have an idea that you might actually get into power. Um, so I, I wonder if maybe a lot of this stuff will, the fringes tend to fade away once power comes into view. And uh, I, I think a lot of the grossing also fades away. I, let me just say something about the question of a so-called Polyev pivot, you know, because there's been some debate about that in, in the media in, in, in recent days. You know, my instinct, knowing him a little bit, is that we're not going to see a, a sudden 180 on a bunch of issues. He's not going to go from defund the CBC to a champion of the public broadcaster. Um, that strikes me as un, uh, highly unlikely. What we may see, because it, 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 it's sort of deep inside him and occasionally it comes out, is uh, a message of about uh, aspiration and opportunity. He did an interview early in the race uh, with uh, someone at McLean's, and he was asked, you know, what's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for you? And he said, when my parents adopted me. Um, and I, I just, that strikes me as such a, a kind of compelling idea. This is someone who was born to um, a, a teen mom who was not in a position to raise him. He was adopted by two parent, two teachers in Saskatchewan, and in one lifetime is poised to become the leader of one of uh, the G7's major parties and possibly um, the prime minister of the country. And if I was advising Pierre, um, you know, it seems to me uh, that's a kind of message and a frame um, that would resonate with a lot of people and that can manifest itself in a series of public policies from you know, uh, a dynamic economy being a key foundation of uh, of social mobility to support for, um, you know, people in difficult circumstances. He was, for instance, when he was a minister in Ottawa, someone who championed the cause of, of adults with disabilities. So there is kind of something within him um, that uh, can express itself as a kind of a, a, a pretty aspirational and and compelling opportunities vision. And I, I hope uh, once this race is over, we start to hear more of that. I think it not only would it serve the purpose of mollifying some of these uh, voices that were present at this week's conference, but would go a long way to addressing concerns that Rudyard has rightly raised on this podcast, which is um, that uh, Polyev's kind of current hard edge persona is is going to turn off a lot of uh, swing voters uh, 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 across the country. Stuart, let's give you the last word on today's podcast. Um, what can our listeners uh, and readers expect uh, next week in the hub? I, you got you and Sean have some stuff cooking up to kind of continue this conversation on the kind of future of conservative thinking in Canada, where it could be headed. Yeah, the one piece I'm really excited about next week is an essay by Ben Woodfinden, where he does an extraordinary job of just kind of defining Canadian conservatism as it has come through history. Um, if you read Sean's piece today, it kind of touches on that, but Ben has taken kind of a political theory uh, method of defining how it has happened and how it will go from here. Uh, it's just 
it's really the, the key success of the piece is it defines all the terms that I think we've all been struggling for mm-hmm. to sort of describe the intellectual processes here. So I think that is the marquee piece you should look out for next week. Uh, we've got a bunch of other stuff, but uh, make sure you read Ben's piece. And on hey. Hub Dialogues, Rudyard, I mentioned the coin interview on Tuesday to mark our 100th episode. Um, thanks for listeners for staying with us over the past several months. And then on Thursday, we have what Jonah Goldberg likes to call rank punditry. We have popular guest JJ McCullough back on the podcast to talk all things conservative leadership race. Nice. Great work, guys. Look forward to my coming week of uh, per diem emails. You can get those every morning in your inbox, 7 a.m. Eastern. Uh, the best uh, analysis and insight from the Hub team. Um, Sign up anytime on our website, www.thehub.ca. We'll do this all again next Friday, guys. Uh, Enjoy another warm, hopefully sunny, lazy week uh, wherever you are. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. Hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, topic and idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only hub dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.